Welcome to Enabled in Academia. My name is Linky Diedrichs, your host, creator, and hopefully not the only listener of this podcast about how to survive and thrive in academia as a disabled, chronically ill, and or neurodiverse individual. Here with me today, I have King's PhD candidate, Ahu Kuchisfahani. Ahu's research focuses on feminist discourses and social media. Ahu, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I know that we've had a bit of a conversation before on on COVID and you were saying this is something that's really made you think anew about disability and um, you know how a lot of adjustments that disabled scholars have asked for before COVID are now suddenly available. I don't know if you have some thoughts on that. Yes. So what happened with COVID and the whole lockdown really opened my eyes as to how ableist the academy actually is. I was supposed to upgrade in March, for instance, uh, right around the time that lockdown happened. So you can imagine the uh, anxiety that I had, you know, the uncertainty of what is going to happen. Uh, Will I even be able to continue my PhD? And in March, I was thinking, you know, I still have to do this upgrade no matter what. I just had to. (laughs) But so I started my self-imposed isolation earlier. So in the very beginning of March, I decided it's safer for me to avoid public uh, places. And it was right around the time when the strikes were ongoing. So I was already home since then. And then I was working on my upgrade package. And I didn't realize what a significant a thing it was that I was doing by self-isolating until I let my supervisor know and I didn't want this to in any way affect my progress but she was very kind and did suggest that I should uh, request an extension so that really helped me to see how it's normal <laughs> to not feel okay and to ask for help at difficult points. I upgraded eventually at the end of April, but it really helped me understand that I didn't have to do everything at once and that the pandemic was affecting so many people, not just me. Um, I know that sounds really stupid when I say it now, but in the beginning, I thought it was just going to affect people who are more at risk. I didn't realize it was going to get to this point. And I'm not to say that I'm glad that I got to this point, not at all, but I just feel like we have found so many more common ground now. Yeah, and that's very interesting. It is, I completely agree. And I think, I don't know what your experience is, but pressure to have to go into the office, for instance, every day, or uh, the pressure to have in-person meetings has really been lifted. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just a fantastic thing for people with disabilities who maybe struggle to or really have put in a lot of effort to take public transport. In mm-hmm. my case, for instance, since the lockdown, I also went into uh, lockdown a week before the actual official lockdown because I'm immunocompromised. And I haven't been ill up until very, very recently from any other infection. So it was six months of infection-free living, which I think is the longest I've had mm-hmm. in my adult life and um, my quality of life really improved. I think what a lot of people forget is it's not just COVID that is a dangerous virus. If you're immunocompromised or disabled in some other way, any bug is potentially fatal. 
And navigating the world of microbes has become a lot easier with um, online functions, online conferences. I just really hope we can we can maintain that going into the future. Just comes to show that dynamic changes in an institution can really benefit people in unexpected ways. Absolutely. You're absolutely on point. The quality of life has changed for me as well. I think it's quite absurd when we say this. Many people will just look at us like, what are you talking about? But yeah, the stress of, you know, having to be present at a certain hour and, you know, getting public transport, which is such a hassle if you do have a disability, it just adds up, you know. And everything that goes with it, you know, I sometimes catch myself thinking, how did I do it? You know, I I feel like I'm glad that I was able to still do it, even though there was so uh, much to consider and so much stress involved. But I'm also glad that I don't have to do it anymore. And I'm a bit concerned as to how we are moving forward. I hope that we can move forward with more flexibility as we are doing right now. I hope that this stays and that we can choose our own schedules and work around what works for us. I don't want this to be just a phase. I want this to last and I want us to be able to really be honest about our limitations and think about how we can work best. The fact that people are now considering working from home is so brand new to lots of able-bodied people. But for us, I think we have wanted this for so long and we were looked down upon as being, you know, not serious about our responsibilities or, you know, we were never able to do the job. All these ableist notions that we were given because you know, we couldn't be as productive in society, let's say, in that certain way that was going on before the pandemic. So, yeah, I really hope as well that we can learn from this collectively and move forward with a lot more flexibility. Absolutely, Ahu. And I think you touch on such an important uh, issue, this uh, issue of perceived seriousness as a scholar in the, in the academy. Mm-hmm. I've had situations in the past with not my current supervisors, but in previous uh, previous degrees where there was just this implicit understanding that if I take longer to do an assignment or prefer to do a consultation via Skype, at the time it was mostly Skype, that I was somehow not being a serious enough student. What was interesting for me is how those ableist ideas become internalized and you actually start to believe that you're not a serious scholar because of your limitations. And that's quite yeah. scary. Earlier on in the year, I had a major medical issue and um, it took me far too long. I would say about three or four months too long, actually, to ask for help. I was so scared that asking for help would translate as me shirking my responsibilities as a PhD or being presented as an unserious scholar. But actually, after having gotten my adjustments and having gone through all the medical procedures, you know, I'm a better scholar for it. And we can just really hope that the institution doesn't put those implicit normative judgments on us again, you know, so that it's like, oh, of course we have flexibility for, you know, a conference call, but really, you know, we prefer you to be here. And it's sort of this unsaid pressure. Exactly. And I mean, you're so right. I think for me, it is the exact same experience. My whole educational life, I mean, 
since I was very little, has always been around, you know, proving everyone that I can do this. And there's an element of ableism in there for sure. And there's an element of self-satisfaction as well. And it's so hard to maintain that balance because, as you said, you internalize it as as well. And um, at some point you start hating yourself for the things that you cannot do. And if you can do something and people, are, I mean, your teachers or whoever are so proud of you for doing it, you feel like, you know, you're an exceptional being, <laughs> which shouldn't have to be the case, you know. So, yeah, I completely agree. I think there's, we have to be able to strike a balance. When can we be honest about our limitations and how does that affect the way we are perceived? as academics, but also how does that affect our own confidence, you know? And these are very serious topics that I have come to think about a lot more in depth in the, I mean, thanks to this pandemic, let's say, because of this pandemic, you know? I mean, going back to my uh, upgrade experience in March, I felt it's horrible if I ask for an extension. I don't know. It's, I don't have anything. There's nothing wrong with me right now. You know, I don't have COVID. So why do I need to ask for an extension? But it's not just the problem of, you know, when you're completely down (laughs) that you need to ask for an extension. It's everything that surrounds it and also the mental health aspect of it. You know, it's very normal to be in such a panic (laughs) state when you are experiencing going into a lockdown that you know I see that now as being completely normal but before you know six months ago I was a completely different person you know I wouldn't want that to affect me negatively <laughs> because I would have thought six months ago that that would have been negative but you know I'm glad we've changed <laughs> yeah me too and I think it's um Another interesting point you raised, which I think is really valid and worth discussion, is this idea that, oh, I can only ask for help when I'm at my lowest. And that's yeah. something I've really been trying to raise at King's as an issue, is we need to be able to make our supervisors, but also our support structures aware of what a disability actually means. It doesn't just mean, oh, okay, now, right now, at this point, I'm in my lowest low. Or if you have a chronic illness, now I have a flare. Or if you are suffering mostly from mental mm-hmm. health right now, in a crisis that is actually the worst time to make decisions about whether you should get an extension because the crisis is already on you it's actually putting systems in place that check in regularly with students and regularly with researchers and staff to hear how are you doing right now and if we can have systems that check in regularly without any how can i say penalizing ableist effects you know so oh gosh if i'm Mm -hmm. just talking about my uncertainties about the future about where i might be you're not going to see me as unserious or a less productive academic, but rather have a type of um, politics of care, isn't it? Where we go first from the point of view of care um, rather than the point of view of productivity or seriousness. And it's a kind of sort of world. Um, and I know you said you've joined a collective of academics where you've started to experience that. Yes, absolutely. This collective that I'm part of, we focus on the politics of style actually is the name of the collective 
But re more recently, I feel like we're turning into the Politics of Care Collective, which um, is great. We are a couple of early career researchers and more senior level uh, researchers who are feminist, anti-racist and uh, decolonial. And more recently, we have discussed ableism. And so um, I'm very proud of this collective because we are now, all of us, staunchly anti-ableist as well. And um, this got us to think about the intersections of decolonialization of the academy and the anti-racist uh, work that needs to be done desperately uh, within academia and intersecting that with ableism uh, and anti-ableist work, so to speak, because we don't necessarily talk about ableism in the same light as we do racism. So yeah. anti-racist work is definitely important. So is anti-ableist work and the the same in the same light we speak about the racialization we need to talk about ableization as well yeah and um, this collective has been really inspiring and a great space to uh you know unpack these ideas and for us to really talk about how ableism affects all of us because we are not we are not all of us disabled a few of us are uh, some of us have chronic illnesses i am for instance the only one with a visible disability so that's very interesting to see um how different you know navigating academia uh, as a as a non-abled body is when you are invisibly disabled as well as other members of our group who are, you know, able-bodied in, in the um, capitalist uh, way, you know, of that perfect uh, productive body. So, yes, we are coming at it from many different angles and we are trying, so to speak, to enlighten our field, which is IR and um, uh, so international relations. Um, more broadly, we're not trying to prove that, you know, ableism and IR, this topic is groundbreaking. No, it has always been there. It's pervasive, but no one talks about it. So we want to enlighten this aspect of international relations and think about, you know, the instances where it's been muted and why this has been the case. And, you know, all of this has been very helpful for myself as well to think about how ableism has affected my work as well as other members of our collective they have come to think about this as well because of the fact that we are intersectional feminists and always talking about ways in which we can improve IR so we need to include anti-ableist work within that as well. I think that's incredible what your collective is doing and um, I can really encourage other departments and other fields of study to have similar collectives because I think from what I understand you guys also share a lot of your work with each other, you present your work, so it's really an engaging community where we are not only talking about our academic lives but about our positionality as researchers mm -hmm. with 
our research. And um, especially in the social sciences, which is where I'm situated, this idea of reflexivity has become increasingly important, um, particularly in terms of feminist and uh, anti-racist um, and decolonial work. But I completely agree with you that rarely, if you go to a seminar, you read an article on reflexivity or on positionality, do we ever talk about ableism? And I firmly believe that unless we also address that in research, it will continue to be neglected, as you've already said. And we know from other research being done in uh, anti-racist fields and feminist fields that by acknowledging flexibility and actively working against misogynistic and anti-black uh, or colonial views, not only improves the quality of your research, but also the quality of you as a researcher and a person. Um, and I think that's perhaps a really nice place to conclude on today is when we talk about ableism and we talk about adjustments, we don't just talk about ourselves as isolated atomistic beings in this world. We are actually talking about our research in a very deep and meaningful way. And we encourage able-bodied people to think of ableism as a research priority in terms of reflexivity as well. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, I think that's a very nice place to end because um, we need to move forward thinking about the intersections of anti-ableist work, anti-racist work and decolonial work. And I am very confident that we will achieve at least a, you know, a bit more of anti-ableist awareness also thanks to social media. So we have lots of uh, Twitter activists, for instance, and disabled collectives. And I think we are on the right track. <laughs> Absolutely. It's now just getting the awareness into actual change. Um, but I will include some of these Twitter accounts in the transcripts and in the description box. So guys, please follow that. And to all my listeners out there, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the COVID situation and how that's made you reflect anew on your disability and the way institutions respond to disability. And then, of course, this very important and fascinating and personally, I think, incredibly valuable and important topic of anti-ableist work in academics. How are you working that or not working that into your field? I'd be particularly interested in people working in STM fields to hear from you. Ahu, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time speaking with me today and for introducing us to your incredible collective and your fabulous insights. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Linky, for creating this podcast and for having me on it. I think this podcast is really great. Um, it's so accessible as well. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing many more podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Enabled in Academia. Please do like, share and support this podcast on Twitter by following us at Enabled in Acker. If you have any questions, suggestions or impressions, please tweet at us or send me an email at enabledinacademia at gmail.com. The music for this podcast, A Room for Two, is composed by Dan Leibovitz and is available on the YouTube Audio Music Library. As always, access isn't optional for us to be enabled in academia. Yep, I'm making that a thing.